Well, good morning again to everyone, and I, I want to say welcome again now not only to those of you who are here in our contemporary service, but welcome also and especially to those of you who are joining us in the traditional sanctuary right now and also via broadcast. I'm glad that we had this opportunity to learn from God's Word together as one church family, even if we have to be in different places at the same time. And speaking of learning from God's Word, we're going to be reading the Bible together this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to use one, in just a minute our ushers will be coming up the side aisles with Bibles, and if you want to borrow one from them during this service, please feel free to do that, and you can just stick it on the rack in the back of the room again after the worship service today. I want to start by showing you a picture of a member of our family who's a very important member of our family. That's our dog Zoe right there, and uh, Zoe's a 10, 10 half-year-old Labrador retriever. Amy and I, like many couples, when we first got married, before we had kids of our own, she was our first baby, and uh, we had Zoe in North Carolina. This picture obviously was taken in Minnesota. She's a, she's a snow dog. She loves it. And uh, so we've had Zoe for a number of years now. And last year, in the summertime, late summer, it was, it's always my job to take Zoe to the vet for her annual checkup. And while the vet was checking her out and uh, checking her ever-increasing weight and all the things that we do at our vet appointments, uh, I, I said casually to, uh, to Zoe's doctor, I said to our veterinarian, I said, so I, I suppose Zoe is entering into the autumn of her life now, isn't she? And the vet, much more quickly and unequivocally than I was hoping for, said, oh yes, she is. And uh, so she said, well, fortunately she's made it through kind of the eight, nine year range where we lose a lot of labs. Uh, so I said, well, we kind of hoping for, can I, can I hope for 12 or 14 years? And she said, oh, 14 is pretty rare. 12 is really what we hope for. So she's 10 and a half and I'm realizing we're not going to have her with us forever anymore, and, and I don't want you to think I'm morbid or anything. Don't judge me, okay? But uh, uh, nowadays, a lot of the times that I look at Zoe, I am reminded that this is temporary. You know, I'm reminded this isn't going to go on forever. And about, maybe about two weeks ago, I was laying down on the couch in our living room, and, and Zoe took her cue, and she laid down on the floor in the middle of the living room, which could be just about any day, any time. She has a lot of laying around these days. And I looked over at Zoe while she was there, and it occurred to me in that moment that this isn't going to happen forever. And then, as I was feeling a little silly for thinking about that, I also thought to myself, I bet she's not thinking that. <laughs> you know, I bet Zoe is not uh, thinking about the number of days that she has left. I don't, I don't think dogs contemplate their own mortality. Maybe I'm wrong. I think Zoe's basic train of thought, I was thinking about this since the last service, I think her, I think her brain space, that goes toward food, sleep, and the UPS man. I think that's kind of <laughs> Zoe's concerns in life. He brings treats, so she likes him a lot. Dogs don't contemplate their own mortality, but people do. I do. I don't think about it all the time, of course, but I'm aware from time to time that I'm probably somewhere around the halfway point in life. Maybe, hopefully not quite yet, but maybe, maybe not. Who knows? I think about friends and loved ones and family members in my life who have died and how I miss them. And I think about friends and members of this congregation who right now, today, are fighting for their lives. And I definitely think about what comes next, what comes after this, and so do you. Human beings, think about this. We have this natural, innate hunger and desire and wonder about what comes on the other side of the grave. And it's something that many of us experience some level of fear about. It's one of the universal human fears, fear of death. In fact, studies show there's really only one other fear that ever competes for how universal it is and how significant it is across human beings with the fear of death. Do you know what it is? It's the fear of public speaking. Isn't that funny? Especially right now, it feels kind of ironic to me. I actually did some reading about this. I was kind of curious. I did a little reading. And some psychologists believe that the fear of public speaking and the fear of death are actually almost the same thing. 
that historically speaking, thousands and thousands of years ago, human beings were in grave danger if they were rejected by their social group because they might be exposed to predators or elements and ultimately to death. So when I stand up in front of you today, maybe I'd be afraid of being rejected unto death. Is that right? It's almost the same thing. But human beings share this fear of death. I think we're up against two things, as a matter of fact. We're up against two human problems when we think about this, at least two. The first one is the uncertainty that goes with it all. It's the uncertainty and, and the wondering, because very few of us have ever been there and come back. And so we wonder about what happens after this. And we wonder, will it be good or not? Or we wonder, is there anything really there at all, or is that just it? I remember when I was in college, when of course I was not thinking about this because college students will live forever, right? But I remember one time seeing someone who had a t-shirt on and it said, life is like a roller coaster, but it's not the ups and downs that scare me so much as the sudden stop at the end. That was well said. On the one hand, one of the problems we face is the uncertainty of the whole thing. But the other human problem that we face that worries me, honestly, is not so much the uncertainty as it is that particular kind of certainty about the future that doesn't do anything for the present. You know what I mean? Like, wouldn't you think, I, it feels to me like there ought to be some positive correlation. There ought to be some direct relationship between believing something hopeful about the future and having a life in the present that's full of hope and compassion and kindness and generosity. But that just doesn't always happen. I have heard and met and known plenty of people in life, and I believe that you have too, who seem to be burdened by not one doubt whatsoever that they are going to spend eternity in heaven with God, but heaven doesn't seem to be invading earth very much in their lives. And unfortunately, I would bet that that person is me a lot more often than I would like to think. And so it is that we come up against this Bible story today. We read this story from the book of Acts about a guy named Stephen, and it fills me with hope for both of these two problems. It fills me with hope for these things. Because on the one hand, Stephen was himself so full of hope that Jesus had given him for a future after his death. And it inspires him, and inspires him in such a way that he's not only filled with hope for his future, but his present is transformed by his future. He's a disciple of Jesus. And so he not only believes that as a follower of Jesus, he gets to go where Jesus is going, he will walk where Jesus walked, but he also, as a follower of Jesus, gets to walk how Jesus walked. He emulates his character also. Somebody once said to me, in a very provocative way, said, you know, discipleship to Jesus isn't only about getting to go to heaven when you die, though, thank God, it is that. Discipleship to Jesus isn't only about getting to go to heaven when you die, it's also about becoming the kind of person who will actually enjoy the ways of heaven once you get there. I thought that was a provocative thing to say. So what I'd like to do is walk through this story of Stephen with you and begin by explaining who this Stephen is. If you were here in worship last week, you might actually recognize his name from last week's story. If not, I'll catch you up right now. Last week's story was about the, the Christian community as it began to grow and needed to continue to change and adapt the ways that it cared for the needs of the vulnerable members of its community, of its church family. And to begin with, they appointed seven leaders who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, the Bible tells us, to care especially for the widows who were beginning to be overlooked in their community. And Stephen is the first one of those guys who's named there. And it gives us a little bit of a description of him and then names several others. 
And now today we get to actually hear a story about Stephen and his life. But we know from what we heard about him before that he's someone who spent a lot of his time, maybe we call it his volunteer time, maybe we call it some other time block in his life, but he spent a lot of his time caring for these vulnerable widows who were a part of the Christian community, a part of, that, a part of the early church family. And we know that he lived and spoke and bore witness to the light and life of Jesus in his life. And now today what we're going to learn is that this did not mean that his life instantly got better. In fact, it probably made his life harder in some ways than it was before because he encountered opposition for his witness to Jesus. There were other leaders among the Jewish people who resented and I'm sure were threatened by what Stephen and the other Christians were saying about the meaning and teaching of Jesus. And what we're going to see, and in just a minute we'll open up and see this for ourselves, but what we're going to see is that there were two particular flashpoints or two particular points of conflict where this stuff came to a head for them. Excuse me. And one of those was what the early Christians began to say about the temple. The temple of God, the Israelite Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Now it's not that they were threatened to the temple or were doing anything damaging to the temple. They went to the temple and prayed. Some of them, the Bible tells us, were there praying every day at the hours of prayer. But they understood the role of the temple differently now. They no longer believed that the temple was the center of God's people because they believed that Jesus was the center of God's people. And they no longer believed that the temple was the center of God's presence on earth because they believed that Jesus was the center of God's presence on earth. And they had experienced the event of Pentecost when God, as Jesus had promised, poured out his presence, poured out his spirit on all the believers in Jesus. And it wasn't contained to one area of the temple anymore, but, the, but God's presence was poured out on all his children, on the whole church family. And so they thought differently about the temple now. I would say in some ways they relativized the, important of the, the importance and significance of the temple under the importance and significance of Jesus. That's one flashpoint, one point of conflict. The other one is what they began to say and do about the law, the Old Testament biblical law. Now, it's not the Christians all of a sudden began breaking all God's laws as fast as they could. In fact, I doubt they broke very many of them at all. That's the kind of people they were. But they no longer believed, for one thing, that the law was the, was the ultimate guidance for ethical living or godly living. Now, to understand how to live, they looked at Jesus. They followed the teaching and the witness and the example of Jesus. And probably even more threatening, even more significant for the conflict, was that they no longer saw the law as defining or marking out who belongs in the people of God. You could no longer say, I know that's a God person because they obey the covenant of circumcision, because they observe the Sabbath, because they obey the food laws that are unique to the Jewish people. You couldn't look to the law to figure out who's a God person now. This is an important lesson for us. How do we find out who's in God's family? Anybody of any ethnicity anywhere around the world who acknowledges that Jesus is Lord. And this was deeply unsettling for the other Jewish leaders. And so they laid this charge against Stephen. I want to show you this charge. So if you have your Bible with me, with you, we're going to look at a few verses here in Acts chapter 6 and 7. And you can start in your Quest Bibles on page 1602. And the first verse that I want to show you is from Acts chapter 6. And it's verses 13 and 14. This is what it says there. They produced false witnesses. Now, not false in the sense they made stories up entirely, but they distorted the truth. They bent it. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow, Stephen, never stopped speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So these are serious charges. And they're laid at the feet of Stephen and symbolically at the feet of all the Christians. And the high priest turns to Stephen and says, what do you make of this? Are these charges true? It says just a few verses later. And then Stephen answers that charge in a way that I think is very instructive for Christians still today. Stephen had no Twitter-worthy response. He had no soundbite, no 10-word, 10-second answer. What Stephen did when asked, are these charges true? He said, let me tell you a story. And he began to tell the story of God's work among God's people throughout the ages. He said, once upon a time, there was a man named Abraham. And God made a covenant with Abraham. And he retold the story of the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this story for yourself before, and I hope you'll be able to read it this week. And if you use the devotional guide that's in our, in our worship bulletin, you'll read through that story this week. One thing you'll notice is that Acts chapter 7 is a really long chapter, and we're not going to read it all right now. But it's really long because in Acts 7, Stephen retells the story of the Bible. He retells the story of the Old Testament in one chapter. And he does this for a couple reasons. One reason he does this, I think, is simply to affirm we still believe the Bible. This same story is our story. This hasn't changed everything. But then he goes about and changes things. And the way he tells the story reveals some characteristic emphases in the way that he now sees the story. And one of those things that Stephen does as he tells the story is he really highlights those parts of the story of God's people where God's people have rejected God's leaders along the way. Particularly leaders that God sent to his people to try to save them. He begins with a guy named Joseph, way back at the end of the book of Genesis, who was one of the original 12 sons of the man named Israel, the, one of the patriarchs of Israel, who's rejected by his own brothers and sent off to die before he winds up being the instrument of God's saving in their lives to save them from famine and nearly certain death. He tells the story of Moses, the great leader of God's people in the Old Testament, who was rejected by God's own people before eventually being God's instrument of saving them from from slavery in Egypt and leading them out into Exodus. And Stephen mentions a number of Old Testament prophets whom God sent to the people of Israel to say, return to me with all your heart, worship me, treat one another with justice and caring and compassion and kindness and generosity and morality and how the people rejected God's prophets. And Stephen tells the story this way because he's leading up to the point of saying, and now you have rejected Jesus, who's not just a Joseph, He's not just a Moses, he's not just one of the prophets of the Old Testament, but he's the faithful son of God, the righteous one, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, by whom God means to save all the nations of the world from sin and death. And you've rejected him. And I think by extension, he applies this to his own predicament. I'm a follower of Jesus and you're rejecting Jesus as you reject me. No doubt this was not a well-received word on the part of his audience, but he starts there and then he ends with the straw that I think is the one that breaks the camel's back here. He begins to talk about the temple, which he's already in trouble for, right? And he, and he reaches back into the Old Testament. If you still have your Bibles open, by the way, you can just stay on this page if you want. We're going to be right here. This is, now he gets to, well, it's one page later. It's, Acts, uh, it's page 1604, Acts 7, verses 48 through 50. Stephen explains what the early Christians thought about the temple. He says this, however, the most high God does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? 
has not my hand made all these things? And so Stephen picks up on this strand from the Old Testament that other Jewish leaders of his day probably minimized or just read right past, though it was there. And Stephen and the other Christians are able to see this strand in the Old Testament because they have experienced it in Jesus. That the Spirit of God and the presence of God is not dwelling in one room or in one building, but has been poured out on God's people in a sign of God's coming salvation. And when the Jewish leaders hear this, they just they go up in arms. This is, this is all they needed to hear. And their persecution of Stephen escalates, and they sentence him to death. They sentence him to be executed by a method called stoning. Now, stoning someone to death is a horrible thing, and it is one of the oldest forms, it is the oldest form of capital punishment known to history. It's a tragic thing. There is evidence of execution by stoning in some of our oldest historical documents. Even more tragic than that, in my opinion, is that stoning is still practiced in some parts of the world today, in some parts of the Middle East especially. And some of you may remember a story that made it into the news for a while a few years ago, that there was a, a teenage girl, a 13-year-old girl, who was sentenced to death by stoning for a crime. She was in Iran, and she was sentenced to death for a crime committed, we would say, by her brother against her, by which she supposedly brought disgrace to her family. And I'll let you fill in the blanks right now. Fortunately, in that case, thanks to international outcry, this particular sentence was averted. But this is still practiced in some parts of the world today. And here Stephen is sentenced to death by stoning. And as they pronounce this sentence on him, and he is now looking squarely in the eyes of death, God grants Stephen a special vision. He grants him a miraculous vision. And here on the cusp of death, he's able to look and see I would say maybe there's a, there's a passage in the Bible that says, now we see through a glass dimly. I think for a moment we could say Stephen saw through a glass clearly. He began to see the world in three dimensions where the rest of us, and for most of his life, we see the world in two dimensions. And he glimpses a heavenly reality. And here in Acts chapter 7, it says that this is what Stephen said as he saw this vision. In Acts 7, verse 56, on page 1605, Stephen said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And here's Stephen at the point of death, and I wonder if he was plagued by any doubts. Is, is it worth it? I am standing up for the Lordship of Jesus, and will I be vindicated? Is, am, I, am I standing up for the truth? Is this really true? Do I have any hope? And God grants him this vision, this moment, to see that Jesus has indeed been ascended to the right hand of God, as we read at the very beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1. And he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he has triumphed over sin and death. And Stephen, whatever price you're paying right now with your life, will surely be redeemed. And in this moment, he gets to see this vision. And other Christian martyrs, not all of them to be sure, but some other Christian martyrs down throughout the ages, have been recorded as saying something similar. Having been granted a similar vision when they were at this thin point between this life and the next. Granted a vision of what is to come, of what comes next. And then Stephen in this moment does something amazing. He says these words and the Jewish leaders and whatever people are there, they start to chase him out of town. And they begin to stone him to death. And battered and bruised in that moment, Stephen does something amazing. He prays for God's forgiveness of the people who are killing him. He prays for God's grace for the people who are murdering him in that moment. Now, I don't only think it's amazing that he was willing to do that. I don't, I don't only think it's amazing that he was able to do that, though let's be serious, that's amazing. 
I think what actually amazes me more than that is not that his heart was able to go there, but that his heart went there in the first place. That when he had, I don't know how many, but it was a countable number of breaths left in this world. When he had only so many thoughts left to think on this side of eternity. When he had only so many prayers left to pray. How many was it? Two? Three? Four? What, was, what rose to the top of his prayer list was, God, I am praying for forgiveness and grace and salvation for these people who are killing me right now. That's amazing to me. I just want to read to you what the Bible says about his prayers. This is still the end of Acts chapter 7. It's Acts 7, 59 and 60. It says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just as Jesus prayed when he was being crucified, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And then Stephen fell on his knees. He's collapsing. He cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. As Jesus in his death cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when Stephen had said this, he fell asleep, which is a biblical euphemism for dying. He was a disciple of Jesus. As the master had done it, as Jesus had done it, the student, the disciple learned it, and now he teaches us a lesson. He teaches us a lesson that not only will Jesus change your future, and Stephen saw this beautiful vision of what it was he was dying for, and he was reassured with the promise that Jesus will change your future. Now he sees that Jesus will change your future, and he lives the lesson that his future will change your present. I just want to show you something by way of comparison to illustrate this amazing act and character of discipleship in Stephen's life. There's another story from not all that long before the life of Stephen, before the life of Jesus, of some other Jewish martyrs who died for their faithfulness to God's word. This is the trajectory in which Stephen lived. And these are Jewish martyrs, and you can find their story in the historical book of 2 Maccabees. And you don't have to go look that up and find it, but if you wanted to, it's in 2 Maccabees chapter 7. And I brought along a couple quotations I wrote down from 2 Maccabees 7. This is a story of seven brothers who were being persecuted to death for their faith. And some of their words, as they cried out as they were dying, were written down by, fellow, by their fellow believers. And this is what a few of them said. One of the brothers said as he was being killed, One cannot but choose to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives of being raised again by him. So he was already holding on to the hope that there was more life, there was another life in God. But then he said, But for you there will be no resurrection to life. And then another one said to those who were persecuting and killing them, keep on, he said, you guys, keep on and see how God's mighty power will torture you and your descendants. And then finally one of them said, but you who have contrived all sorts of evil against us, you will certainly not escape the hands of God. You have not escaped the judgment of the almighty, all-seeing God. Now, I can understand that. I'm pretty sure that'd be my natural response in a situation like that. I bet many of us would respond like that. And that is the story out of which Stephen comes. That's the tradition of martyrs which Stephen comes from. What happened in Stephen's life? Apparently having some kind of hope for the future will not necessarily change the character of your present. But you know what Stephen had that they didn't have? Stephen had Jesus. He didn't just have some theory of the future. He didn't just have some religious, pious belief. He was a disciple of Jesus. And so he knew that not only did he get to go where Jesus went, not only did he get to go to the same destination, but he got to go there by the same direction. 
He not only walks where Jesus walked, but he walks how Jesus walked. Jesus will change your future, and then his future will change your present. And I am inspired by the example of Stephen. I'm in awe of Stephen. When I grow up, I want to be like Stephen, because when Stephen grew up, he grew up to be like Christ. I'm thinking about changing my name to Stephen, just to reinforce this for myself. <laughs> Stephen was filled with two things. He was filled with the hope of Jesus, and because he was filled with the hope of Jesus, he was also filled with the character of Jesus. And that same thing is true for us today. Those things, same things are available to us today. Are you filled with the hope of Jesus? Are you able to look at death, at the reality of death that is looming over all of our lives at some point, unless Jesus comes back first? Are you able to look death in the eyeballs with peace? Are you able to look death in the eye with an unconquerable hope like the one that Stephen had, full of confidence? Because death is eventually coming over all of our stories. And if you are not, if you do not know where your hope is coming from when you face death face to face, then I also want you to know that that matter can be settled once and for all, and it can be settled here and now. Because Jesus is the one of us who has already been dead, and God raised him again from the dead and redeemed his life. And when he says, come follow me, he's not just talking about taking us for a walk. He says, come follow me, and I will share with you my life that will never end, that even though you die, yet you shall live. Or as Jesus said to his first disciples in words that would be spoken to us also, I will come back and take you to be with me that where I am, there, there you may also be. And if your spirit is ready to respond to the invitation of Jesus today, then in just a minute I want to lead us together in a prayer and talk to God and put our lives into the hands of Jesus. But I also want to clarify that when we say yes to Jesus, we are not even just saying yes to some pie in the sky hope that has nothing to do with today. But we are saying yes to a hope for the future that will change our present. It's remarkable how once the problem of death is solved, there's a lot of things in life that get clarified. It's remarkable how the power of eternity has the power to put things in the present in perspective. That when our sins have been forgiven and our eternity is secured, we're able to deal with a lot of the things that challenge us in life and a lot of the wounds and a lot of the temptations and a lot of the brokenness that face us in this life in a whole different way. And Jesus says, come follow me and I will take you there and I'll take you by the way that I'm going. This is the mission that we have as a church community. This is it. Our mission as a church family is the great commission of Jesus. It's to be and make disciples of Jesus. And I am passionate about this mission because I know from my own experience the difference between looking at one's own death full of the hope of Jesus and without the hope of Jesus. And I want everyone to have that hope. And I want everyone to have that hope forever, but I also am passionate about this because I know what the hope of Jesus does to our present. Because I know that being a disciple of religion I know that having a theory of one's future doesn't necessarily mean anything in particular for one's present. But I know that the hope of Jesus has the power to transform our lives now and forever. Jesus says, come follow me and I will give you a life now and forever. And that is a life worth living and dying for. And I respond and I invite you to take Jesus up on that invitation today. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have won the victory over sin and death in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God, we trust you and we put our lives into your hands. Jesus, we pray to you as Stephen did. He gave you his spirit at that moment in his life. We give you our spirit at this moment in our lives. We are already in your hands and we acknowledge you as Lord and celebrate your victory. And Jesus, I pray that you would do for us as you have done for all your disciples and as you did on the very first Pentecost holiday, that you would pour out your spirit on us 
and fill our hearts, Lord Jesus, with hope and confidence even in the face of death. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would transform our lives, that you would mold us into your image, that you would fill us with, not just with hope, but with a hope-filled love, a hope-filled kindness, compassion, generosity, that you would shape us into your character. Lord Jesus, change our future, and as you do so, change our present. You are our Lord, and we are bold to pray as we live in your own name. In Jesus' name, amen.